Thank you, Doxology, for leading us so well uh, in this. Uh, thank you, Dr. Booker. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Could we stand for the reading of the Word of God? For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, which all receive, you are illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so we can share in his holiness. No discipline. It, it seems enjoyable at the time, but it's painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and your weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but healed instead. Pursue peace with everyone in holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure no one falls short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble and defiling many. And make sure there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, though he sought for it with tears because he didn't find an opportunity for repentance. You have not come to what can be touched, to blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and storm, to blast of a trumpet, to sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they couldn't bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. That appearance was so terrifying, Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. Instead, you've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city of the living God. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, to a judge who is the God of all, to the spirits of the righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that says better things than the blood of Abel. Let's pray. God, I praise you for the blood that you shed. I praise you for the gift you've given to us. I praise you for the discipline we endure at times, knowing that it, no less than the blessings, are from your hand. And God, I pray that you would help us today that we may hear, understand, and receive the truth of your holy word. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. 
Well, it's hard to keep pressing forward when you find yourself under pressure in a place where you don't fit. It's hard to keep pressing forward when you feel the pressure of being in a place where you don't fit. I discovered that a few years ago in a place that's called the St. Louis City Museum. Has anybody been to the St. Louis City Museum? I see a handful of you. You have been there. It's not a museum like you usually think of a museum. It is a 12-story building in St. Louis that is put together in such a way that there are slides, there are ladders, there are these metal ribbed tubes that you climb through on the outside of the building. There's an airplane and a bus on the outside of the building you can climb through. It is basically a massive jungle gym. Now, I am going to do everything I can with my kids. It doesn't matter what. And so in all of that, in going to the St. Louis City Museum, I climbed all the ladders. I slid all the slides. And at one point, I found myself outside of that in this tube that's a metal-ribbed tube. And I climbed up to the top of it. It's sort of in an arch shape. I climbed up to the top of it and I got to this small point at the top and I had a little bit of a problem. You see, what all the people in front of me were doing is they flipped their legs forward and then slid down on their bottoms down to the next part. But I tried to do that and I couldn't do that. (laughs) I couldn't get my legs in front of me and I was trying to do that and trying to get my legs in front of me and here I am and there are dozens of children behind me and some of them are saying, why? up there stopped and I'm trying to do this in the midst of this and something occurs to me 50 feet above the ground that should have occurred to me on the ground maybe this spot wasn't made for me Maybe this was made for people who are closer to five than to 50. Maybe I am in a spot feeling this pressure because I'm in a place that wasn't actually made for me. Well, that's kind of what the people who heard the book of Hebrews for the first time were feeling. They were under pressure because they had found themselves in a place where they didn't fit and they were struggling with whether to go forward or to try to go backward in the place where they're feeling pressure. You see, previously, these were people for the most part, seems to be, that they're people who their lives had been shaped by the Jewish liturgies of synagogues and sacrifices. Now, the Roman neighbors, they looked down on the Jews, but the Jews had sort of a protection, a provision for them that was based in large part on the fact that the Jewish faith was so old and was venerable. And so there was a level of protection they have, even if their Roman neighbors looked down on them. But then some members of this community had turned to Jesus as their Messiah, And suddenly all those protections and all those provisions that they had had by being part of the life of the synagogue and of sacrifices, those began to vanish. And if as many people think this text was written or preached as a sermon sometime in the late 60s AD, there is the fact also that the the persecution in Rome in AD 64 after the fire in Rome has broken out and it seems to be perhaps having ripple effects in the rest of the empire such that there is a threat to these people who have declared their allegiance to Jesus Christ. We know at the very least from chapter 10 and verse 34 that there has been confiscation of some of their possessions. They have lost their possessions because they are Christians. They are feeling the pressure of being in a place 
where they no longer fit. And they are facing a dilemma. Do we move forward with the faith in Jesus that we have, or do we try to move backward into the life where we once were? Do we move forward or backward in this place where we are feeling pressure and feeling persecution in this time? And as they heard this word of exhortation, they are having this pressure of forward or backward. Now, one of the things that we need to think about in this text is we often, in the book of Hebrews, we often look at chapter one and two about the supremacy of Christ. We talk a lot about the apostasy and the possibility of that in chapter six and 10. We preach often on the hall of faith in chapter 11. We even this part about Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith in the first part of chapter 12, we talk about a lot. But something we don't talk as much about is what this has to say about discipline and suffering. But you in your ministry, you will need words about how do I endure and press forward in pressure and trials and suffering. Because that is much of what ministry is made of is pressure and trials and suffering. But you don't just need it in preparation for future ministry. You need it right now for your life. Because either you are in a time right now of pressure and trial and suffering, or you will be. Such is life in a fallen world, that you are either in pressure and trial and suffering, or you will be. You need it in preparation for ministry, how to endure through this, and you need it for your daily life. And there's one point I want you to get in this text. One point, and it's simply this. Your faithful endurance in suffering is a sign that you're a son on the way to a better city. Your faithful endurance in suffering is a sign that you are a son on the way to a better city. And there's two movements in this text that I want us to look at. The first one is that God's discipline doesn't mean you've been forgotten, verses 3 through 17. And the second one is God's discipline is taking you to a better mountain, verses 18 through 24. First one of these. God's discipline doesn't mean you have been forgotten. The first word of encouragement in this text you may miss as an encouragement but it says in verse 4, in struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Now, shedding blood throughout this text generally has to do with death and often sacrificial death. But I want to paraphrase that and just point out one aspect of this that we may not notice or consider at first. And that part of what he's saying is, if you're hearing these words, you're not dead yet. Simply that. If you're listening to these words, you're not dead yet. You're still alive. You are not dead yet if you have, you're listening to these words. You've not gone yet as far as Jesus went. And as long as you're not dead, there is an opportunity to engage, to move forward, and to wage war against sin in your life. And this is a beautiful truth. If you're listening to me, you're not dead yet. You're not dead yet, and as long as you are alive, there is an opportunity for you to endure, as long as you're alive. And there are some of you who you're saying to yourself at different times this past week, I can't faithfully endure and obey. You know what I had to say for you this text? You're not dead yet. 
You're not dead yet. There is hope for you. Some of you have been struggling already this week with sin. That it's a sin that has nagged at you and bothered you for years. And you're almost to the point that you are feeling as if I just need to just, I'm always going to have this sin. I'm always going to struggle with the sin. It's always going to be with me. I just need to keep it under control and under the carpet. It's always going to be there. You know what I say? You're not dead yet. There is hope for you because you're not dead yet. There are some of you at a rough Sunday. And yesterday you pulled out the resume and you started polishing it up because you feel like you're done. You're not dead yet. And as long as you aren't dead, there is hope for you. And I don't mean to be flippant about that. Some of you in different areas of your life, you or somebody else may actually be facing death, whether it's in the form of a disease or cancer or whatever it may be. But even in that, remember, Every breath you have is a gift from God. And you're not dead yet. And as long as you are, there is hope for you. And when you're pressing forward, when you're feeling suffering, when you're sensing these trials, that is God showing that you have been adopted as a son as a son. That's what he says in verse 5. You've forgotten the exhortation that lets you know in the Psalms that, that if you are suffering, if you are being disciplined as a Christian, then you are in that demonstrating that you are truly a son. You're truly a son. I want to pause for a moment and talk about this word sons for a minute. Because in our culture, in our context, some people can think that somehow is this, this masculine language of that is demeaning or diminishing to women. But I want us to understand something. That in their culture, in their context, the ones who received inheritance were almost exclusively men. Were almost exclusively sons, males. It was almost exclusive. There were exceptions, but it was largely men who were receiving the inheritance. Sons, in the masculine sense of receiving inheritance. Women were generally cut out of inheritance. And so what he is saying by referring to the, the children of God as sons right here, what he's communicating in this is that women are equal heirs with men of the blessings of God's kingdom. This is important because ladies, this, this term sons, it doesn't diminish you. It dignifies you by declaring that you are an equal heir of the kingdom of God. That's what's being communicated here. There is an equality, you're co-heirs of God's kingdom. And one of the signs that God has indeed adopted us as sons is you're enduring trials as discipline. What we do imperfectly as human parents God does perfectly for us. He disciplines us. Before we talk about what discipline doesn't, does mean, let's talk first about what it doesn't mean. What discipline isn't. Your trials, your suffering that are disciplined are not God punishing you for your sins. If you are in Christ, all of the punishment for your sin has already been taken. 
Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You are not being punished in discipline for your sins. God is not paying you back for your sins because if you are in Christ, all payment for your sin has already been paid. You owed an infinite debt. You deserved infinite wrath and Jesus endured infinite suffering as your substitute. It's not God punishing you for your sins. But in discipline, God is teaching you and training you for holiness to be more like Jesus. There's different categories that discipline can fall into. There's some discipline that you have in your life that's a result of Adam and Eve's sin. Some discipline is a result of Adam and Eve's sin. Think of things that, that where the world or where our bodies don't work according to God's original design because of the sin introduced through Adam and Eve. And the result of that in our world is disasters, it's disease, it's sometimes it's disordered desires and attractions and addictions. All of these things that we struggle against, all of those come from or are a result of the disordering that comes from the sin of Adam and Eve, and God allows those in our lives to train us to be more like Jesus. But some, some of these disciplines, some of these trials are a result of other people's actions. But those as well, they aren't payment for sin that you're suffering. Rather, it's something God allows that he will turn for your good in his time. Sometimes your discipline, your trials are a result of your own poor choices. Sometimes God allows you to suffer the natural consequences of what you did. But even then, it is not God paying you back for your sin. The sin has already been paid if you are in Christ. It's already paid. It is God disciplining you for holiness. And I say this because you are going to counsel and pastor and shepherd people who believe that the suffering in their lives they believe that it's because God is punishing them for their sin. And in those moments, you need to be able to let them know if you are in Christ, point to the cross, look to the cross. Whatever is happening in your life, if you are in Christ, it is not a punishment for your sin. It is God's discipline for your good in ways that we may not understand. It says in verse 11, it will later yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So like Tim Keller rightly says, if you knew all God knows, you would ask for precisely what God gives. And in any situation in your life, if you knew all that God knows, you would ask for precisely what God gives. And therefore, verses 12 and 13, we can strengthen, be strengthened and straightened. It says in verse 12, strengthen your tired hands and weaken knees, make straight paths for your feet. You can move forward, press forward because of the fact that God is doing what he is doing for your good. Augustine, in one of his sermons, Sermon 386, he says this. Hear these beautiful words. Never speak ill of God when you are suffering, Augustine says. He corrects you now so that he can console you later. 
God is right now knocking the cheap and childish toys out of your fists so that you can grow up into disciplined maturity. He is knocking the cheap and childish toys from our hands that we may receive the presence of the living God. Your discipline does not mean God has abandoned you. If you are in Christ, what it's showing is you are a true son. And what he does next in this text, the author turns from true sons to false sons. And he talks about there are two ways that false sons retreat, move backward in times of trial and suffering. The first one of these is we might call it inward idolatry. You can see that in verse 15. It says in verse 15, make sure no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up. Now this is a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 18. And it's what I might call an inward, uh, an inward idolatry springing up in that particular text. It's something that's hidden where you're finding your comfort. Something in your life that is hidden, that is under the surface, where you are finding your comfort. And he's letting us know that if that is in your life, it will eventually spring up and it will be a bitter harvest. Sometimes there's an inward idolatry, but sometimes there's an outward rejection of God's provision. You see that in the next verse where he talks about in verse 16, Esau. Esau, who had received this, he was this individual who he gave up his birthright simply to receive a bowl of soup. He outwardly rejected the blessing. And because he had rejected it, there was no place found for him, it says, to repent. But notice what's happening in both of these. The individual is retreating backward to what is temporary instead of enduring for what is eternal. They're retreating backward into what is temporary instead of pressing forward into what is eternal. And that's what these first readers were tempted to do by retreating to the law, is to go backward into what was familiar instead of pressing forward into what was harder. And it calls us to ask ourselves, where are you tempted to find your satisfaction in times of trial and suffering and discipline. Where do you run back? Where do you think about? Where do you long to run back? When you are in a moment of trial and suffering, pressure and discipline, confess it, run from it, flee from it. It will not satisfy. There's a better way. As I said, there are two movements in this text. The first one of these, God's discipline doesn't mean you've been forgotten. It means you're a son. The second movement in this text is that God's discipline takes you to a better mountain, to a better place. God's discipline always takes us to a better place. And the author begins with a reminder of what life had been like under the law. He speaks of here how it was fearsome, this fearsome mountain that everybody had to keep their distance from. Even animals could not approach this mountain. And Moses was the only one who approaches it. And even Moses is shaking in his chacos when he does. There, there's a fearfulness. There is a distance between humanity and God that is declared through the law. And they're reminded in this that the old covenant was true, 
but it was temporary. It was always intended to be temporary and meant to lead to something better and more lasting. And the author is calling them to recognize that turning backward is not going to satisfy them. That the only satisfaction they will find is by moving forward, moving forward. A few years ago, 2018, I was going to speak at a youth ministry conference in New Orleans. And we, they'd set up a hotel for us. They'd given us the information to check into the hotel. And we arrived later than we'd intended to at the hotel. So we got there to the hotel and we checked into the room and opened the door of the room. And the room was not quite what we expected. It had one couch, one bed, a closet, and a bathroom. That was all. There are six of us. That's not convenient. But I said, all right, let's just, we're going to make the best of it. We're just going to make the best of it. We're going to go through this, make the best of it, do what we can. And so we did. We have piled in there. It is not impossible to fit six people into a single room like that. It's not impossible. We didn't even unpack or put anything in the closet, nothing like that. We just piled in and slept sort of that night. Every time I rolled over, I slapped three people. It was just like really small right there. The next morning, we got up and we're going to put all of our stuff in the closets and all the things like that. And we opened the closet door and it wasn't a closet. It was another room. <laughs> it was another room. It had two king size beds, a balcony, had a bathroom. It was all there in that room. What we thought was the closet. It was like going through the wardrobe into Narnia. We walked through. Now imagine for a moment, imagine that the next night I would have said, why don't we just go back to that other room? Because didn't we have good memories in there? Very close, very close knit in that room. Why not just go back to the other room? Why go into this new room? Why not just retreat back to the other one? Well, that's the challenge they're facing right here. The challenge is they are being tempted to go back into what had constrained and constricted them instead of pressing forward into what could ultimately satisfy them. That's ultimately what they're facing in this, what they're facing at this point. Now, as we think about that, God had opened the door to forgiveness and joy and Jesus in the new covenant. But some of them were saying, yeah, maybe it wasn't so bad back there. Maybe that room we were in before, it just wasn't so bad. So here's what the author does. He reminds them first and foremost of what they have been saved from. That's why he, he describes all the fearsomeness of the mountain, the distance that they had to keep from the presence of God. He describes all that to let them know this is what you've been saved from. And in times of discipline and trials and suffering, always remember this, sometimes what you were saved from can look better than what you were saved to. But always remember that that's an illusion and a lie. But it happens in your trials and in your suffering. That sometimes what you're saved from doesn't look as bad as it really was. And you need to look toward what you were saved to. And that's what he does next. He doesn't just say what they were saved from. He begins to describe the glories of what they have been saved to. Because you only recognize the emptiness of what you were saved from when you meditate on the glories of what you're saved to. We can't focus on the things we are saved from. 
We need to focus on what we're being saved to. And you only see the ugliness of what you're saved from when you meditate on and you look at the wonder of what you have been saved to. Because what you have been saved to is beautiful. It's wonderful. It is glorious. And that's why he describes it in this next verse the glory, the greatness of it that they're pressing forward to, that they've been called to a better mountain. Verse 22, look what he says there, how he describes it. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, to all these things, these beautiful things that they have been called to. He describes them, and it's beautiful the way that he describes them. You've been called to a city, a mountain that cannot be shaken. As you read this, you realize he's not talking about a physical mountain, is he? Heavenly city, it's Jerusalem. It's not just a place and a people. It's a party. (laughs) You've been called to a festal gathering. You've been called to something where this is what you were created for. This is beautiful. Angels in festival gathering. Not just angels, the assembly of the firstborn, the righteous made perfect. Wow. And so I was thinking about this. and I was like, What does this really look like? So I did what none of you should do, and especially when you're doing your homework, which I went to AI. And so I went to AI, an AI image generator, and I dropped this verse into an AI image generator. Now, I am not going to inflict on your eyes what came out. I'm not going to do that. But I will tell you it looked like a group of elves from Lord of the Rings went to a disco party. That's what it looked like. I mean, that's totally what it looked like. It looked like a bunch of elves landed at a disco party is what they gave me. No, that's not it. (laughs) That's not it. Whatever the author of Hebrews is talking about, it is not that. So let's think through with our somewhat sanctified imaginations. Here's what I want us to recognize as we look at this. This is something he says you have come to. That even though we don't experience this fully right now, we certainly don't experience it fully. When we gather as the people of God, we experience it partly. We get a taste and a hint of it. And when you gather for worship, just think for a moment. If God were for a moment just to rip back the veil and let you see things as they are, you would be seeing angels, angelic beings like you've never imagined, all surrounded. You would see the cloud of witnesses of the saints gone before us. You would see that gathered around. You would see glory and beauty. That's what you would see you would see this and he's describing the beauty of this fully that we'll experience it in the future, but we are experiencing it in part even now. When we worship, we're partying with the host of heaven. That's what's going on, a festival gathering of the hosts of heaven. And I would say that to you because sometimes it can seem that what happens in our church is really ordinary, but it's never ordinary. You are participating in this. You may not see it yet, but someday you will. So sing and worship and pray and and place yourself, press into it, recognizing that there is something cosmic going on when you worship. Rich Mullins, the Christian musician years ago, had this to say once, and I love it. He says, this is what liturgy offers that all the razzmatazz of modern worship can't touch. You go home from church going, wow, 
I just took communion. And you know what? If Augustine were alive today, he would have had it with me. And maybe he is. And maybe he did. You are participating in something heavenly when you worship. You are participating in something beautiful. And the greatest joy of all in that is not the angels and the saints. It's God himself. It is God himself. Look in verses 23 and 24. It says there, in heaven to adjudge the God of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that says better things than the blood of Abraham. It's God himself that makes it beautiful. And there is nothing more glorious or beautiful than that. But here's what's beautiful in this, that in the triune God, your judge is also your mediator. Your judge is also your savior. The one who judges you is also the one who has poured out all of his judgment and wrath on Jesus, who has become your mediator. And his blood speaks a better word than Abel because Abel's blood declared death and the guilt of Cain. But the blood of Jesus declares life and salvation from God's judgment and wrath. And that is the most beautiful part of this festival gathering. What's your trial, your hardship, the pressure right now? Your faithful endurance in this trial is not meaningless. It is a sign that you are a son on the way to a better city. That's what it is. So what do we do with all this? I'm gonna give you three simple things that I want you to take home this week and practice and think about, meditate on. When pressure comes, first off, God is not punishing you for your past. He is preparing you for your future. When pressure comes, God is not punishing you for your past if you're in Christ. He is preparing you for your future. And it may be in this life, It may be in the next one, but God is preparing you for a beautiful future in the suffering you're going through. It's what we're reminded of in the Heidelberg Catechism. Hear these beautiful words. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not even a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. God is not punishing you for your past. He's preparing you for this future. Second. When pressure comes, run to the right mountain. Run to the right mountain. They were tempted to go back to the old covenant, and I realized the differences between them and us and how this is covenantal in their case and in us. We're talking about our personal struggle for holiness. But we, too, are tempted to go backward at times. And when you start to sense that that calling, that feel to go backwards to where you've been, Say, I'm headed to a better mountain. I'm headed to a better mountain. It may be that you're tempted to go back to anger and bitterness and licking your wounds over things that have happened to you. Say, no, I'm headed for a better mountain. 
I'm gonna choose joy in this circumstance. It may be that you're tempted to go back to a bottle or a pill. When that happens, say, I am headed for a better mountain and I am not alone. There are people around me who will help me through what I'm facing. It may be that you're tempted to numb your pain with pleasures outside God's good design. And instead of this, that click, that swipe, that call, whatever it may be, I'm headed for a better mountain. And it may be despair that you don't even want to go on. I am headed for a better mountain. My Jesus has preserved my life for a purpose, and I will go forward to that. I'm headed for a better mountain. And lastly, when pressure comes, know who it is that makes you able to endure. Spoiler alert, it's not you. Know who it is that makes you able to endure. There's a wonderful part in Captain America where every time he's getting beaten down, he stands up and he says, I can do this all day. And that looks really heroic when he does it. But sometimes we try to do that. We think, I can do this all day. And the fact is, no, you can't. You can't do this all day. Apart from the grace of God, you can't even fight against sin for one instant. Nor can I. You can't do this all day. You cannot. I cannot. But if you are a child of God, his spirit is in you and the resurrection power of Jesus is in you. And if you are in that, if you are in Christ, God can do it through you. God can do more than you ever could ask or think. And your endurance in suffering is a sign. You're a son on the way to a better city. So press forward and don't turn back. So there I was, the very top of that place where I was cramped in and I wanted to go backwards, but I couldn't go forwards. What was I gonna do? And so what I did at the very top of that, I did the only thing I really could do. I put myself on my tummy and I just slid head first. <laughs> all the way down, just went all the way down. And as I slid, I yelled at my kids who had gone before me. I said, catch me when I get down there. And they did. And it was okay. And it was kind of fun. And in the same way, when you're in that point of pressure, sometimes you just throw yourself forward and keep going, but know this, there is someone who will catch you, who loves you. There's someone who will catch you, and it is the judge who is also your savior. To God be the glory, amen. Let's pray. God, we praise you, but we do not fight alone. You've given us your people, you've given us your spirit, given us your grace. We are so blessed. God, I pray that you would show us how to press forward and never to retreat back, to head toward that better mountain and to see ultimately, to seek and to see the beauty of you. In Jesus' name.